Random Ransomware News Episode 13 Financial Management Writes the Hidden Risks and Costs of Ransomware Ransomware is on the rise. Organizations of all sizes are at risk, and finance departments are at the forefront of identifying and mitigating ransomware risks. However, that diligence comes with its own challenges. To help organizations identify the growing risks and cost of ransomware, we talk with Jerry Glombicki, CPA Director with Fitch Ratings Insurance Group, about how finance professionals should be approaching ransomware. What you'll learn from this episode. How organizations should be assessing their ransomware risk. How accountants and finance professionals should be preparing for ransomware attacks. How the growing risk of ransomware can cost organizations in unexpected ways. Why organizations should be thinking about cybersecurity across the organization. The value of ransomware insurance. Transcript. Drew Adamek ransomware is on the rise. Every month seems to bring new headlines of massive attacks on businesses and governments. In May a ransomware attack shut down America's largest fuel pipeline. In June another crippled the world's largest meat processor. And in July a single coordinated attack could impact over 1,000 businesses. Finance departments need to prioritize preparing for and mitigating the significant risks of ransomware as it grows in scale and menace. Jerry Glombicki, a CPA and director in the insurance group at Fitch Ratings, recently co-authored a report on the growing risks and costs of ransomware. I'm FM Magazine senior editor Drew Adamek, and I recently spoke to Jerry about why accounting and finance professionals should care about ransomware, why internal communication and collaboration are key to managing cyber risk, and how CFOs and finance professionals should be thinking differently about cyber risk. Jerry, thank you so much for joining us. Jerry Glombicki, thank you for having me. Adamek, how significant is the threat of ransomware, and why should finance departments be paying attention to that threat? Glombicki, so ransomware has grown quite significantly over the past year. In our Fitch Wire, we cite that it's grown almost 500% year over year, and that was according to Bitdefender, so it's definitely a growing financial risk, and it's across all sectors and geographies. Basically, if you're connected to a network, you are at risk of being attacked, so it's really up to your network security to kind of prevent all attacks. One of the interesting things too about ransomware or just cyber risk in general is the information security team has to be right all the time 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. If you just have one flaw, it just needs that one flaw for that bad guy to find it and exploit it and basically get you a very bad day. Adamek, when you talk about it departments needing to be prepared at all times, when you look out at the threat landscape, E. How prepared are organizations to deal not just with the threat of ransomware but cyber threats in general? Glombicki, it varies by company and it varies even within the companies. Information technology is what a lot of people associate with dealing with this risk. But information technology is a very broad department of which information security is a subsegment of that. So one of the things that's very important is something called endpoint security. Endpoint security is basically all the devices that connect to the internet. That's my laptop. That's my cell phone that can actually connect in via its VPN to the actual company's email systems. It's the VPN on my laptop connecting to the systems. All of these things create entry points to the network, which is convenient to me, but also is a security risk to the company. These are things that have to be secured, and they're secured by different people within the IT department. Within the IT departments and the company as a whole, they really need to talk to each other. Again, they just have to be wrong ones for an attacker to actually find a way in. And then just broadly speaking too, when you look at the risks of IT, it used to be done by someone who was kind of an overworked person in the IT department. 
and they just gave them the information security title. You started to see with some regulations increasing that you actually had to have a CISO, a chief information security officer, on staff and that you met certain requirements. Now it's actually a dedicated response, and you're starting to see the board starting to have dedicated information security and dedicated IT segments to themselves as well. So you're starting to see a lot more pickup and interest on this at both the corporate and executive level. Atomec ransomware has been in the news a lot lately because of the recent pipeline shutdown. But are there other risks, not just business disruption, that ransomware poses? Glombaki ransomware in particular is interesting because basically what happens is one day, you'll wake up to find that you don't have access to your systems. There's variance to this as well. As a matter of fact, I was reading from Emsisoft today. They were talking about how some of the threat actors are double encrypting your system, so they'll actually encrypt in once, and then they might. They may encrypt half the system with one method, and they may encrypt the other half with a different method. They might actually encrypt it with the same method twice and make you pay twice. They could be just after certain files. They might just do a certain sub-segment of your network. It causes basically a big business interruption and continuity risks, but also it matters if it's a risk to your supply chain. So for example, if you're looking for a vendor to supply you with something but their businesses are interrupted, that could impact you so you also have to pay attention not only to your risks, but the risks throughout the cyberdax throughout your entire supply chain. That's something that a lot of organizations are really starting to realize. Atomic, where in your opinion should organizations be investing financially to help protect against cyber risk and things like ransomware? Glombaki, one of the questions we often ask companies is, how much money do you spend from your IT budget in information security? It's a little bit of a tricky question to ask. An answer because more dollars doesn't necessarily mean better. Conversely, least dollars doesn't mean worse. What really matters is companies really have to take a holistic view. A lot of companies, quote-unquote best practices will involve a security audit from an independent firm. They'll assess your vulnerabilities, your postures, your current procedures, and they'll come up with recommendations. And I think a lot of companies do that. And then the question is just how much money are you willing to spend to try to fix these holes? At the end of the day, it often comes down to a benefit-cost analysis. You don't want to put a $10 lock on a $1 bicycle. The question is you're just valuing what those assets are to the company, and doing these things is becoming a really big risk management problem. Particularly, as you mentioned, with a lot of these increase in ransomware attacks, it's really getting the eye and the attention and the time of senior management and senior leadership. Atomek, if you're an organization that has been the victim of a ransomware attack, it's not just paying the ransom that causes problems for your organization, is it? Glombaki, that's correct. There's several problems. One of the first problems you have is it's possible that the decryption device they give you is inaccurate or it isn't complete. I think that was one of the things you saw with the recent Colonial Pipeline. The company did mention that they actually had restored most of the system's backup as the decryption device wasn't necessarily all that helpful. The other problems you have when you actually pay a ransom is there are perhaps legal ramifications to it. Here in the United States, the U.S. Treasury Department maintains a list of entities that you cannot pay on the AFUC, Office of Foreign Assets Control list. There's a strict liability policy to that so perhaps you might not have known or could not have known at that time, but there are legal ramifications to paying this. You're starting to see other countries starting to scrutinize payments more. This is definitely something you're getting a lot more press on is should you pay a ransom, and by just paying a ransom, does that create a moral hazard of basically perpetuating the industry? That's not something that Fitch gets involved in when we talk about that stuff. 
because that's not our job to do such. But it is interesting that some companies are responding to this. In particular, we mentioned to Compani, SNR press release, AXA, which is a very large French insurance company, has stopped paying ransomware payouts in France for actual payments to the ransomware threat actors. They haven't done it to any other countries yet, but actually have done it in France itself. We also cite in their Beasley, which is a specialty insurance company which is affiliated with Lloyds of London. Their CEO stated that they do not exclude extortion payments from their policies currently, but they did call on governments to legislate whether such payments do align with public policy or not. Adamek, that gets me to something that is of deep concern to my audience. That's cyber risk insurance. Cyber insurance. What are you seeing in that market as ransomware attacks increase? And what should finance departments be thinking about when it comes to approaching cyber insurance? Glombicky, cyber insurance is a very broad term that a lot of people, a lot of companies seek to use some type of risk transfer. At the end of the day, you really have a couple of ways to look at risks. You can avoid the risks. You can try to mitigate the risks. You can accept the risk, or you can try to transfer the risk. Those are the four traditional risk metrics that we often talk about in the risk world. What you're trying to do with insurance, you're trying to transfer it to a third party. Each contract can be bespoke. It can be different for your company than it is for my company. It can be part of a package policy. One of the things you're starting to see in the US is the growth of the standalone product. It used to be historically part of a package policy. But now companies are trying to separate that out and actually make a cyber standalone policy be the ultimate goal of what they're trying to do because you can basically price for that better. You can capture the risks better. You can underwrite it better. You can see the claims associated with it better. As that evolves and unfolds, you're starting to see losses increase. Fitch actually just put out a preliminary estimate for the 2020 losses for cyber insurance. And you can see that those numbers have increased quite a bit over the previous five years that they were available. Adamek, what are some of the increased costs that organizations are seeing in this sort of landscape of increased cyber threat? Glombicky, several things. The first is actually once an attack occurs, you usually have to do some form of forensics. The forensic departments themselves are just increasing as they are growing in demand. One of the other things is what they call an instant response plan, so once something does happen, what is your plan to actually do this? Often this involves having some type of law firm that specializes in negotiations or handles public relations as well. As this increases in demand, those prices are also increasing in demand. The other is actually just payments, for example, in ransomware. Ransomware Act. Oli kind of started out actually going after individuals, and then it's kind of morphed into going after companies. So the payouts for ransomware themselves have increased dramatically. As most costs in business, everything in cyber seems to be going up as well. Adamek in this increased threat landscape, how should CFOs and finance departments and finance professionals be thinking differently about cyber risk, particularly post-COVID? Glombicky, one of the things that's evolving is the risk in cyber risk. As you mentioned earlier, there was roughly almost a 500% increase in ransomware tax year over year. I think when companies look at their risk posture, their risk appetites, they have to do a risk register and see all the risks that are available to them subject to and try to see again those four pillars if they're going to accept it. If they're going to mitigate it, if they're going to transfer it, they're going to avoid it, and what they do. As you're seeing, as more companies go onto the internet, as more companies just give employees access to the emails, as more companies can actually work from home, all of these are extra nodes onto the network. These nodes could work perfectly fine for you whether they're secure or not. 
but if they're not secure it's also a possibility for a threat actor to enter into your landscape and then to possibly do harm and perhaps immense harm. What you have to do is a business impact analysis as a company and see what your assets are, what those risks are, and ultimately how they line up with your risk appetites and whether you're willing to accept these risks or try to transfer them or try to hire some third party to lower them. Ultimately, this is the actions that the company's management has to do. Adamek, who within an organization should be most responsible for protecting against these kinds of risks and the potential costs attached to these risks? Glombicky, at the end of the day, the person who is ultimately responsible for accepting all risks is the chief executive officer of the company. The chief executive officer uses their executive team to kind of help manage and mitigate those, and the board ultimately has oversight of those risks as well as ultimately the overseers of the chief executive staff. But in the end, it's a collaboration of all of them. Risk needs to not be kept into a silo. It really needs to be a very collaborative effort, a group effort with a lot of talking and communicating between everybody because the IT function, the risks of the internet within a company, it expands on every single section of a business usually. Any one of those could be the entry point for the threat actor, and it can also be the downfall of the company in terms of they don't have access to that. If 80% of your business is working but that 20% isn't, can you handle being out of that 20% and for how long? What are the backup plans associated with that? What other risks are you think? Into perhaps, in terms of business continuity, disaster recovery for that function, and again, even your third-party supply chain of this as well. So to put it on just one person is a bit of a daunting task. It really is an amalgamation of all of these. Usually it flows through some type of risk management initiative, so the chief risk officer or the chief information security officer. But it's just a very broad topic, and it has to be approached in a very comprehensive manner. Adamek Jerry, thank you so much for joining us. Glombicky, thank you. FedScoop writes how surgical email analysis reduces healthcare ransomware threats. The healthcare industry has come under intensified attacks by malicious actors over the last year amid new opportunities to target institutions during the COVID-19 pandemic. Among various cyber threats the healthcare industry faces, ransomware poses particular risks to the patients these institutions are serving. While the goal of ransomware attacks is to extract a payment, the consequences of holding health organizations, IT systems hostage puts patient safety and critical care at risk. Earlier this year, for example, one university medical system which offered important oncology services in their region was victim to a ransomware attack that blocked access to its electronic medical record systems, EMRS. That institution was forced to turn away some oncology patients as a result of not being able to reliably access patients' records or in other circumstances. They could offer only skeletal services with staff reduced to recreating patient records on pen and paper. It took the institution roughly a month to essentially reconstitute their medical records and fully eradicate the ransomware from their system at an untold cost in patient safety and lost productivity. This kind of ransomware attack illustrates a large and growing problem occurring throughout the country, where unseen criminals are holding public and private healthcare organizations hostage. While many organizations have built up an ecosystem of security tools to monitor network activity and firewalls to block malicious traffic, Often their greatest security and compliance risk comes from their employees and business associates who inadvertently fall victim to phishing emails or stolen credential dumps. Cybercriminals have shifted their focus from targeting technical deficiencies to human vulnerabilities, the busy clinician who clicks on an email attachment, the eager patient who fills in credentials to claim a fake offer, an employee who interacts with emails from their suppliers, 
not realizing it is an imposter account. Growing threats against the healthcare sector. The Healthcare Information and Management Systems Society, HIMSS, released a 2020 cybersecurity survey in which they concluded that 89% of all cyberattacks, including ransomware attacks, start on email. Cybercriminals today are adapting their techniques to strategically target people within the organization using social engineering techniques that are designed to trick users into making security mistakes. Threat actors approach these email-based attacks with same effort time and resources they used to put into understanding network vulnerabilities, and there is enough actionable research from Proofpoint that clearly states who is being targeted within the healthcare sector. For example, if an institution has a clinical research component, it is being attacked to gain access to intellectual property, employees that deal with supply chain, those who are downloading invoices, paying invoices or approving quotes, are being targeted because they are more prone to click on a malicious link. If the organization deals with controlled substances that have monetizable value on the black market, those employees are at high risk as well. Proofpoint conservatively analyzes 5 billion plus emails per day with a significant portion of those being sent to health institutions. Our data shows that up to 90% of emails that are sent to healthcare institutions are being blocked by email filters. The rest is composed of targeted emails which appear to come from a known person or entity. Attackers do their homework, targeting people based on data readily available to them. Caught off guard an employee may click on something without thinking, leaving the network open to risk. The resulting ransomware attack may not happen immediately after a compromised credential. Once a cybercriminal gets access to the system, they can take their time gathering information about the organization to navigate their way to a part of the architecture where they can launch their exploits. Though many security leaders today talk about upcoming security threats, such as medical device vulnerability, the data shows ransomware, phishing, and imposter emails still work, and these are low investment and high return attacks for cybercriminals. Certainly medical devices have very valid weaknesses, but we do not anticipate a significant shift in how criminals invest in attacks until the email-based attacks become less profitable. The good news is that healthcare organizations don't have to wait for tools to be developed to address this problem. Modern security platforms, like Proofpoints, give security leaders the insights they need to make strategic investments that protect the organization's people. Building a security strategy informed by data. At Proofpoint, we believe that if organizations can see the data behind who is being attacked, they can better anticipate and mitigate the risks on their threat landscape. A people-centric security approach provides institutions with the ability to apply risk-based controls based who is being targeted and why they are being targeted. We understand the value of protecting people. With Proofpoint's research tools, capabilities, and technology, we give organizations the me ends to keep the bare minimum of exploits away from their targets. If an organization has 50,000 email addresses, for example, and only 10% or those are being significantly targeted, it wouldn't be appropriate or cost-effective to set up the gold standard of security tools against all 50,000 email addresses. Instead of treating everyone the same, the institution can apply adaptive controls on those people who are most at risk. Our targeted attack protection solution provides visibility to an organization's very attacked people VAP, which allows the institution to identify which job functions are under attack and why. Once that is known, the organization can fine-tune their sandboxing so that any emails that come to those individuals can be directed into a sandbox for further analysis. They can also place certain exchanges in an isolated environment so that whole email interchange exists within a container to prevent seepage onto the enterprise network.
All of the activity exists in a containerized environment which can significantly improve the ability to prevent data losses. Finally, we always recommend that organizations continuously update their security training. Understanding which departments are at greatest risk will help leaders make strategic decisions on who has greater exposure to security awareness training. Ultimately, minimizing risk will come down to making sure that these people are best equipped to understand what a suspicious email would look like. CBS News writes addressing the ransomware threat, cyber expert Jonathan Levin on Intelligence Matters. In this episode of Intelligence Matters, host Michael Morell speaks with Jonathan Levin, a thought leader on cryptocurrencies and the chief strategy officer at Chainalysis, a leading anti-money laundering firm. Morell and Levin discuss the growing global threat from ransomware and how criminal gangs' tactics have evolved to target a variety of vulnerable sectors. Levin also explains how cryptocurrencies and blockchain work and how both can help investigators trace the origins of illicit financial activity. Michael Morell, Jonathan, Welcome to the show. Welcome to Intelligence Matters. Jonathan Levin, thanks so much for having me. Michael Morell, so Jonathan, you and I have something in common. We were both trained as economists with an initial thought of spending a lifetime in academia, but we both we both ended up doing something else. We both ended up, I think, doing something more interesting. Can you just describe your story in that regard? Jonathan Levin, yeah, for sure. So I started out as an economist by training really focusing in on environmental economics and quickly realized that, you know, the thing that was going to change the world obviously, the climate crisis was something that was impacting the world. But the thing that I found to be less well understood was the impact that technology was going to have on the world. And ah? Uh, Chile economists in general are not always the best forecasters, and also just not very good at predicting what the impact, the long run of some of these technologies will be on the world. And so then when I came across cryptocurrencies in my spare time, while I was in Oxford, I realized that actually this was a technology that was going to ask a lot of the best fundamental questions about how the internet is going to be structured and how corporations will get built in the future, and who in the world is going to have the authority and power to issue money and form communities. And so I took that as sort of this quest where people always told me you should focus on asking the right questions. And it felt to me like this technology was going to ask all the right questions, and you can do that for the long run. And so the switch from environmental economics to starting a company to try and answer the question about how and why our cryptocurrency is actually being used in the world. Michael Morrell, so you start this company called Chainalysis. What does it do? Jonathan Levin, so we are a data company. We build a data set that matches cryptocurrency transactions to the real-world purposes behind them and then repackage that information up and provide investigation software to government agencies, law enforcement and corporations. And we help all of the businesses that are active in cryptocurrencies to meet their regulatory obligations around anti-money laundering and counter-terrorist financing. Michael Morell, so Jonathan, because of your work and because crypto plays such an important role in ransomware attacks, I know you pay a lot of attention to those attacks, and I want to spend some time talking about that with you. Let me start by saying that I ran across some data in the last few days. And according to a company called SonicWall, a cybersecurity company last year, 2020, there was nearly 5 trillion cyber intrusion attempts, 5.5 billion malware attacks and 300 million ransomware attacks. That's about 820,000 ransomware attacks a day, which is obviously a huge number, which is up significantly in the last couple of years. And I know it's growing again this year. So let me ask you two questions about about ransomware attacks if I can. One is, can you explain for our listeners exactly how such an attack works? 
And two, can you give us a sense why you think there's been such a huge growth in those attacks? Jonathan Levin, yeah, for sure. So what happens when an intruder gets into a network? I think it's important to understand all of ransomware as a business. And in fact, a lot of cybercrime that's not ransomware you can think of really as a business. And so ransomware is just one of the ways that cybercriminals are actually monetizing the access that they get into people's networks and corporations, etc. And the way that they get into these networks is oftentimes through some form of phishing ad. Tech where someone pretends to be another employee of a company or someone who's selling something to a company. And someone clicks on a link and downloads a bit of malware onto that device. And now the attackers are into the network. And historically, there's been different ways to monetize that access to networks. And so one thing that people steal is other passwords, that personally identifiable information that can be used to commit credit card fraud and bank fraud. But there's now you know with ransomware, and it started in the early 90s you know far, far before cryptocurrency, there's been extortion attempts on preventing access to networks. That actually has been a way to monetize this intrusion. And what we've seen in recent years, is it's become a lot more popular to use ransomware as the main vehicle for actually monetizing this intrusion. And so I think when you think about ransomware attacks, you have to think about the business decisions that people are making on the other side of this. And it's an industry where there's different options of monetization. And so when credit card fraud companies become much more sophisticated at preventing that type of fraud, there needs to be new angles for these cyber criminals to, to raise to increase their revenue. And what we've seen is that actually ransomware has taken off in terms of the amount of money that can be generated by the attacks that you mentioned. And I think that it's fair to say that there's been a widespread sort of understanding and payment of these ransoms, which has led to sort of more attacks. And that has gone up considerably. And there's considerably more interest as far as cryptocurrency have become more prevalent. And so that's something that that has maybe contributed to it. But it's definitely been sort of the primary driver of this is just the need to increase revenue for these cybercrime gangs that have been operating in this space already since it's the beginning of the internet but specifically the financially motivated cybercriminals that are looking to generate income today. Michael Morell, so Jonathan, is the typical attack the encryption of the data on the network and then the asking for a ransom to provide a key for that encryption. Is that the typical approach? Jonathan Levin, yeah. So again, I would break it down into access to the network is coming through some form of phishing attack or network intrusion attacks some vulnerability in the network. And then they download the software that encrypts a lot of files, and that can be a decryption key that the attacker is then saying that it will give you the, the decryption key to unlock all your files if you pay a specific set of the ransom. And then typically this is now especially at the top end. Lots of negotiation that happens between the attacker and victim. Michael Morell, and do the attackers focus on particular sectors, or are the attacks sort of evenly distributed across sectors, and sectors don't really matter to the attackers? Jonathan Levin, so actually the sectors really do matter to the attackers. And actually, as of today, we've seen sort of an ability to actually trace some of these actors based on some of the policies that they're setting and some of the targets that they're going after. And so different ransomware gangs will have different policies. And we've actually seen this change dramatically over the last, I would say, several months, where initially some ransomware gangs and some ransomware strains, for example, would go in and detect whether the language of the machine was in Russian. And then would you know if it did detect that, then it wouldn't actually encrypt the files. And then we've seen sort of ransomware gangs chatting and some of the forums like XSS and Exploit 
and they have actually said that we don't attack healthcare or we don't attack specific parts of critical infrastructure in order to sort of comply with the rules that are actually being set by some of these underground forums. So definitely different actors are going off to different types of businesses. I would say that, you know, the thing that's kind of common across these more sophisticated ransomware gangs is that they are really looking at the revenues of different corporations and building target lists the same way as you do for a normal business that's, you know, building a business-to-business -business software company. Michael Morell, and then the perpetrators of the attacks. We hear a lot about Russian organized crime, and they are indeed a major player, but who else is in this game in a big way? Jonathan Levin, yeah? So I think there's several parts of this, I think, that there's a global affiliate program of these ransomware strains and authors where there actually is an ability for people now to know if they have more local access to specific companies or networks in different regions, they can actually monetize that type of access by sort of. They don't need to write the ransomware themselves. They can actually get it from one of these ransomware authors, which a lot of it comes from Russian organized crime. But effectively, they can spread their influence even more by having these affiliates go out and give them access to specific corporate networks in different parts of the world. And so I think one of the main takeaways that we've seen, and particularly if you look at that, was a case that involved a network which was a particular ransomware strain. And there was a big affiliate based up in Canada that actually, Lee was allowing network to really blossom in North America. And you know, that was taken down by the FBI with some assistance from Chainalysis and the ability to go after those affiliates and make examples of that is going to be crucial to making sure that that global industry that surrounds the enablement and growth of this is quickly shut down and disrupted. Michael Morell Jonathan, let's dig a little deeper into how people pay ransoms when they've been attacked. Nearly every time you read about an attack in the media, you read that the attacker is asking for payment in cryptocurrency. And I'm wondering, is that true? Is that the preferred payment method? Is that the only payment method? How do you think about that? Jonathan Levin, yes, so. And this goes back to the to the early 90s when ransomware began. People at that time asked for bank wires to be sent. And so that floppy disks could be shipped. You know, that was kind of the beginning of a ransomware and extortion attacks where the people are going to go with the most low friction option to actually make these payments. And so what typically is happening today is ransom is largely being demanded in cryptocurrencies. The vast majority largely in Bitcoin although sometimes we're starting to see some demands also in Monero. And effectively, companies are engaging in a negotiation, usually with an incident response firm that is helping them navigate the attack, and they then engage in a negotiation with the authors. And the payment is often made either by an instant response firm or some, some form of third party that can gain access to that much Bitcoin. Because clearly domestically, there's still a lot of barriers from a compliance point of view for corporations being able to just simply go ahead and buy that much cryptocurrency. So there are specialist firms that allow corporations to gain access to large amounts of Bitcoin at short notice to be able to make those payments. Michael Morell, and is there a difference between Bitcoin and Monero when it comes to these kinds of payments? Jonathan Levin, I think there's a question of access and ease. So there's clear regulation that came from FinCEN, which is the financial crime regulator, which talks about the need to check for sanctions compliance when you're making these types of payments. And the ability to do that in in Bitcoin is that we provide that type of screening and monitoring of these payments to various providers that are making these payments. And I think it's very important that there continues to be that level of visibility into these payments. I would say that the visibility on the Monero side is much more limited. Michael Morel, so Jonathan, before we continue with the ransomware story here and how it relates to crypto, 
I'd like to take a little digression and ask you about cryptocurrency and illicit finance in general, which is something that you and I've talked a lot about. The conventional wisdom, right, that you see is that the use of cryptocurrency is dominated by illicit finance. True? Not true? Jonathan Levin, it's not true. So the dominant use of cryptocurrency is for legitimate purposes, in fact, more than 99% of the flows that we see in cryptocurrencies are being used for regular commerce, cross-border payments, there's still a high degree of speculation, and in really market-making eye. Side cryptocurrencies that tend to dominate the actual flows that we see in cryptocurrencies. And just to your point is that even if you take this ransomware problem, the ability to have full visibility into the payments that are being made actually has helped, in a lot of these instances, and you can point to Samsung ransomware, which was an Iranian strain of ransomware that came out several years ago, being able to detect some of these payments, and look at the financial infrastructure that's being used as cash. Outpoints has been critical in causing disruption to what is you know inevitably always going to exist as a threat. And so I think that there's a growing appreciation that not only cryptocurrency use have generally a really good purpose in providing new types of financial infrastructure and greater financial inclusion, but also actually that the government agencies that are dealing with the ransomware threat have to be able to track and trace it in order to be able to dismantle this type of infrastructure. Michael Morell Jonathan, we were talking about that conventional wisdom, right? That the use of crypto is dominated by illicit finance. Where do you think that comes from? What's the source of that conventional wisdom? Jonathan Levin, I think that the origins of some of these narratives come from like the very early days of cryptocurrencies, and some of these narratives just perpetuate based on sort of anecdotal coverage in media outlets. But really, I think you can trace back to the genesis too, you know? Cryptocurrencies were a challenge to the existing financial order, and you know, it was very early days, like similar to the days in the early internet where people were very nervous about the internet being used for bad purposes, and your whole life didn't depend on apps that you have on your phone, and you didn't send the email at the time and you didn't. Your whole life wasn't sort of enhanced by the internet in the early days of the internet. Similar thing happens with cryptocurrency, is that these narratives start out in the very early days of the technology where really those benefits will take 20 to 30 years to fully transform industries and fully become just sort of accepted as the way that the entire world works. And we're 10 years into cryptocurrency, so you know, a few, maybe a few more. And those use cases are starting to blossom now. And that narrative is changing. But it will take some time before everyone realizes that, you know, their lives and their children's lives have been sort of impacted in a positive way from cryptocurrency. And that is in my mind just an inevitability, the same way that the internet was an inevitability about the cost of information transfer and the speed of information transfer just dropping to zero. Michael Morell, so you, Jonathan, touched a little bit on on the ability to trace these transactions, and I'd love to dive into that a little bit more. And Beffer, if we do that, maybe you could just explain to people what the blockchain, how does it work, why is it important to cryptocurrency, and then we can get into to how the blockchain can be used to actually trace some of these transactions. But what is the blockchain? How does it work? Jonathan Levin, yeah, so the blockchain is really the core technology that sits behind cryptocurrencies, and effectively it is a record of all the transactions that have happened in cryptocurrency. And the reason why that's so important is because there is no central party behind Bitcoin or any of these cryptocurrencies. There is only an agreement between everyone about which transactions have happened in the past. And that is what the technology is, and what creates these currencies, and means of payment is just that everyone in the world can look at the Bitcoin transaction record, 
and agree that these are the full amount of transactions that have ever happened. And so the fact that these records are there, it means that a company like Chainalysis can look through that to firstly verify that there's no other Bitcoin transactions that have ever happened. So we have the complete set of information. And then what we can do is we can build a data set that explains to people what is the purpose behind those transactions, which are the services that exist in the world that actually put those transactions into the blockchain, into the record. And so what we've been doing for the last seven years is building that most comprehensive picture of which of the services have been putting those transactions into the blockchain. And that allows us to then have a complete view of all of the purposes behind these transactions, which then allows people to be able to track and trace. And so we can say which transactions have been associated with ransom payments and which transactions have been associated with regulated industry service providers like the exchanges that exist. Michael Morell, so maybe Jonathan, if you could take us a little bit deeper, how do you identify these illicit actors right on the blockchain? Jonathan Levin, yeah. So the nice thing about you know the blockchain is that we have this complete record of all transactions that have happened. And so there's part of this, which is some machine learning and pattern recognition that we have developed. But there's part of this, which is just simple intelligence gathering that we can actually look at reporting information from some of these actors on forums. Or we might get some information from some of our customers about which ransom payments they are making on behalf of their customers. And it allows us to have this picture of information about which of the ransom payments are actually being made on the blockchain. So we depend quite a lot on the ability for people to share information. And I think that is one of the one of the key areas that we actually still need to continue to press on and improve how people share information relating to cryptocurrency payments when it comes to ransom in order to in order to fuel greater disruption. Michael Morell, so Jonathan, can you go beyond just identifying an illicit transaction and actually identifying the illicit actors themselves? Jonathan Levin, yeah. So I think that there's a couple of different ways to think about this. And when it comes to the ability to tie even a single attack back to the actors themselves, we actually are able to do this just because we have the complete picture of what is happening on the blockchain. And so even if we do not get informed that it was a particular ransomware strain that was responsible, you know, Oftentimes we've been able to just take a payment of interest and tie it back to some previous activity that the actor has been involved in. And so the interesting thing here is that by creating greater information sharing procedures and protocols, we are actually going to be able to assemble a much better picture of which attackers are responsible by which actors. And then the question is, well, can you move from that actor and understanding into some real world identities? And the way in which we've seen that happen is through collaborating with industry on being able to get some identifying information, either from the merchant services side of this industry. And when I say merchant services, I mean a lot of the profits from ransomware are being reinvested in cyber infrastructure for further attacks. And actually some of these payment companies are global. Some of them are based here in the United States or in foreign jurisdictions. And there's really an ability through good the classic sort of law enforcement work to actually find some of these further indicators and build a better picture of who these actors are. And so one of the things that we have in this country, as well as in friendly jurisdictions, is you know cryptocurrency exchanges are regulated and have to comply with AML requirements. And so if it is going to one of those exchanges in a friendly jurisdiction, there's really good ability to actually get information about one of the identities that are behind those transactions by serving those entities with legal process. Michael Morell, and for my listeners who don't know AML is anti-money laundering, so Jonathan, a couple of recent cases, we've actually seen the ransom that was paid recovered. So how does that happen? And does blockchain analysis play a role there? Jonathan Levin, yeah. 
So I think in all of the cases that involve ransomware, blockchain is going to be crucial to understand the financial network of payments in order to be able to understand the actors that are involved, altering the actors that are spreading it, and the full global network that now exists. And the fortunate thing is, is that with the power of the blockchain, you have the potential to create that full network and really understand where it's most vulnerable and structure a disruption strategy around it. And in the case that we saw of the recovery of the payment associated with Colonial Pipeline, the ability to do that really is just about understanding the full network and finding pieces of vulnerability. And so that's what I think is, is critical, is that whenever there are these payments, that there is a full analysis of not only the payment itself, but all other related payments and payments that those actors are making to other people to further their aims and ambitions. And through doing all of that, you start to assess where can there be vulnerabilities? And in that case, you may actually be able to recover some of the ransom and send a strong message that actually this country does have the capabilities around how to follow payments after a ransomware attack and be able to and actually be able to, to disrupt the financial reward that's on the back end. And I think that this is a big focus of where we should be on the policy side, is this thinking about what are those options of disruption and how can we best maximize the potential for the moving forward? Michael Morell, and do you see the attackers learning from the capabilities that we've been discussing, and have they reacted to that learning? Jonathan Levin, so I'm sure they're avid listeners of your podcast. And so, you know, I don't doubt that the people are learning a lot through the great advances in technology. And it's clear that this is always going to be a game, where the capacity and the capabilities of government agencies to meet their mission is going to continue to increase with a lot more investment, but then the attackers will change. And I think that there is something fundamental about being able to have this complete picture of the blockchain that in my experience, even though the level of sophistication of some of the actors has changed and they've, you know, created some obfuscation strategies and other types of things, we had chances of continued to invest in being able to detect some of this activity and help assist law enforcement in creating some of these cases that we've seen. So, you know, I do see it as sort of a continuous sort of proverbial cat and mouse game. But I think it's something that is just inevitable. Michael Morell, so Jonathan, just maybe a couple of last questions here, and you touched on this a little bit, but maybe a little bit bigger picture. How do we get our arms around the ransomware problem? What should we be doing? Jonathan Levin, so I think you know, from our perspective analysis and you know, my personal perspective, I think that the narrative that has been prevailing that you need to treat this with a counterterrorism mindset and consistently put more resources on coordinating a whole government approach and a real assessment of which of the authorities and agencies will be able to disrupt different parts of the ransomware supply chain and cryptocurrency play are really crucial part in enabling the government to actually understand that financial network and map it out. So to find the most vulnerable parts of that supply chain and engage in strategies to actually disrupt that and create a deterrent from some of the more sort of financially motivated bystanders that are helping facilitate that. I think there's a huge international component to this where a lot of the internet infrastructure that is being leveraged in these attacks is actually sitting in friendly countries, and there are payments being made where there are some real wins in being able to understand and map this out again. I think this is an international coordination problem, and we need to we need to be better at forming these international task forces and bodies. And then finally, I think there's capacity building and rapid information sharing programs that do already exist and in various forms and in both cybersecurity and financial intelligence, I think it's about determining which are the right channels, and we have some really concrete suggestions about which actual pieces of information can be shared with protecting victims from further attack, 
an invulnerability that would further sort of again. The potential for disruption. The potential to actually maybe also issue some sort of financial notifications, blacklists, sanctions on some of these entities to, to raise the deterrent and damage the financial returns. And I think that we must think about moving at the speed of the technology and appealing to maybe not only the traditional sort of government mechanisms, but really be innovative about what rapid response looks like. And we've started to see that in business email compromise, which is a massive market in terms of financially motivated cybercrime, still sort of bigger actually than ransomware. But we need to do the same in ransomware and make sure that we are able to respond internationally at the speed of the technology and reaching out and spending a lot of time thinking about that as well. Michael Morelso, Jonathan, we have about 45 seconds left here. One more question. The long-term future of cryptocurrency. Are you a bull or a bear? Jonathan Levin, I'm a bull. The way that I think about this is there are technologies that exist that have inevitable impacts on the world. The ability for people to program money and form communities over the internet and build much better and more secure means of exchanging value will inevitably have a huge impact on the way that corporations around the world function, the way that governments around the world function, and so ultimately, I see this as one of the true inevitabilities in the 21st century. Michael Morell, Jonathan, thank you. Thanks for joining us. Some fascinating insights. Thanks for taking the time. Jonathan Levin, thanks so much for having me. Blocks and files writes Gartner. Customers need to prioritize ransomware. And Commvault rules the row. Oast. Gartner's latest critical capabilities for enterprise backup and recovery software solutions report purchase required. Looks at a dozen vendors and says customers should prioritize recovery from ransomware attacks, protecting data stored on premises, in SaaS applications, and in public cloud IAH services, Commvault is the top vendor. The report recommends that backup software should support replicating on-premises backup data to the public cloud and automatically tiering it there to lower cost archival storage. Backup software should provide automated disaster recovery, particularly large-scale ransomware attack recovery, and it should also protect edge location data. Ranga Rajagopalan, VP of Products at Commvault, issued a quote, we're thrilled to be the only vendor with the highest scores across the use cases of data center, cloud and edge environments for the second year in a row. After having been named a leader in the Gartner Magic Quadrant for enterprise backup and recovery software solutions for the 10th time, Gartner's analysts looked at three location-based use cases, data centers, public cloud SaaS, IAH and PaaS and edge locations. They judged vendors' suitability across 13 separate capabilities, including scalability, ecosystem integration ransomware, and DR orchestration. The data center use case vendors and product score order are Commvault, Faridas Rubric, Cohesity VM, Dell EMC, IBM Druva Zerto, HPE, Unitrends, Acronis, and Microfocus. The cloud environment use case vendors and product score order are Commvault, Faridas Rubric, Cohesity, VM Druva, IBM, Unitrends, Acronis, Dell EMC, Microfocus, and then Zerto. The edge environment use case vendors and product score order are Commvault, Rubric, Cohesity, Veritas VM, Dell EMC, Druva, IBM, Zerto, Unitrends, Acronis, and Microfocus. That's like a grand slam for Commvault with consistently strong placings for Rubric, Cohesity, and Veritas and VM as well. Gartner points out that Acronis, Dell EMC Power Protect Data Manager, Microfocus Data Protector, Unitrends and the Zerto platform all performed below average in all three use cases, with IBM Spectrum Protect plus just below average in the three use cases. 
Threat Post writes ransomware volumes hit record highs as 2021 wears on. The second quarter of the year saw the highest volumes of ransomware attacks ever, with Riot leading the way. Ransomware has seen a significant uptick so far in 2021, with global attack volume increasing by 151% for the first six months of the year as compared with the year-ago half. Meanwhile, the FBI has warned that there are now 100 different strains circulating around the world. From a hard number perspective, the ransomware scourge hit a staggering 304.7 million attempted attacks within Sonic Wall Capture Labs telemetry. To put that in perspective, the firm logged 304.6 million ransomware attempts for the entirety of 2020. The two P3 ransomware strains seen in the wild by the firm are Ryak Cerber and Samsam, according to a recent mid year report from Sonic Wall. Top ransomware variants. In terms of the three most common types of ransomware, Sonic Wall researchers recorded 93.9 million instances of Ryak in the first half, catapulting it to the number one position, a number that's triple the number of Ryak attempts seen in the first six months of 2020. Meanwhile, researchers also saw Cerber used in 52.5 million recorded hits in the first half of 2021. Researchers said that Cerber is definitely on the rise. The number of attacks nearly quadrupled in April and by May it had risen to nearly five times the level seen in January. And finally, there were 49.7 million recorded instances of SamSam. In Sonic Wall's numbers for the first half, more than double the volume seen during the entire year of 2020, June alone saw 15.7 million hits, researchers said, which is more than two-thirds of the 23.5 million SamSam hits seen for all of last year. Record-setting cyberattack volumes. The level of attacks appears to be increasing, According to SonicWall, ransomware volume jumped from 115.8 million attacks in Q1 to 188.9 million attacks in Q2. Even if we don't record a single ransomware attempt in the entire second half, which is irrationally optimistic, 2021 will already go down as the worst year for ransomware SonicWall has ever recorded, according to the report. To boot, every month during the second quarter also set a new record. After rising to a new high in April, ransomware rose again in May, then saw another increase in June, researchers said. During that month, Sonic Wall recorded 78.4 million ransomware attempts, more than the entire second quarter of 2020, and nearly half the total number of attacks for the year in 2019. Ransomware a global problem. The report found that ransomware isn't just growing, it's a worldwide problem. Europe felt the brunt of the spikes in volume with a 234% spike in ransomware attacks in the first half, according to Sonic Wall, North America wasn't too far behind, with ransomware volume jumping 180% in the region. The news is better for Asia, where ransomware hits were up just 59% year-to-date. However, after hitting a high point in March, attack volume began dropping, researchers said. By June, there were only about a fifth as many attacks as there had been three months prior. While Europe as a region saw the most pain, the U.S. recorded far and away the most ransomware attacks the analysis found, with attack volume in the U.S. rising 185% from the first half last year. In fact, of the top 10 countries for ransomware volume, the U.S. had nearly as much ransomware as the other nine put together times four, according to the report. Ransomware volume in the second-ranking country, the U.K. rose 144%. Government most targeted sector, by an overwhelming margi. And the most commonly targeted industry in 2021 has been government. By June, government customers were seeing about 10 times more ransomware attempts than the average, according to researchers.
However, the devil is in the details when it comes to interpreting this stat. Government customers are still seeing a higher-than-average number of ransomware attempts, but in three out of six months during the first half of 2021, education customers saw even more, noted the report. The Morgan Messenger writes most files recovered in school ransomware attack. Morgan County Schools has been able to recover most of the files that were lost in a July 2 ransomware attack that affected many businesses and agencies in the United States and around the world. A Russian-based hacker group initially demanded $70 million to stop the widespread cyberattack. School Superintendent Kristen Tuttle said local schools did not have to pay the hackers to get their files back. She said previously that the attack was contained to some of their office computers, some individual machines were infected and some files were locked. Tuttle said there were a few school administrator computers that were impacted in the attack as well. The county school technology team first went through computers in the central office and then checked computers at the schools to see if any had been compromised. All school computers have been swept for malware. Cassia, a Florida software company whose subsidiaries remotely handle security and IT infrastructure for small businesses and public agencies, was hacked on July 2. Ransomware was embedded in a software tool. Computers were infected with the ransomware when they downloaded updates, Tuttle said. Superintendent Tuttle said that they have not found any evidence that any personal information of students or staff was stolen. We have been able to recover most of the encrypted files. We are back to business as usual and preparing for the upcoming school year. I am pleased with our technology department and their professional and expert handling of the ransomware attack. We were able to achieve a relatively quick recovery despite the complicated attack, Tuttle said. The federal government has been grappling with a holistic response to the massive uptick in destructive ransomware attacks that have bombarded the country in recent years. As part of that response, the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, CISA, recently launched a Stop Ransomware website, which is aimed at helping private and public entities test and improve their cybersecurity. Among other key features of this effort is a self-assessment tool allowing organizations to test their cybersecurity based on government and industry recommendations and standards. This is a potentially useful addition to any organization's cyber preparedness toolkit. This may also become another benchmark against which the reasonableness of any company's data Security protections are measured when facing private claims or regulatory scrutiny after a ransomware attack. The new Stop Ransomware website provides links to various resources with recommendations based on operational insight from CISA and the Multistate Information Sharing and Analysis Center central to these resources is the CISA September 2020 Ransomware Guide containing Ransomware Prevention Best Practices and a Ransomware Response Checklist The guide's best practices include sections on, among other topics. Creating backups of your data. Creating a cyber incident response plan. Testing and updating internet-facing devices. Implementing a cybersecurity user awareness program on phishing attempts and updating antivirus and anti-malware software. In addition to this guide, the website compiles myriad other resources, including from the National Cyber Investigative Joint Task Force, the Federal Bureau of Investigation, and the National Institute of Standards and Technology to test whether your cybersecurity is up to par. The website provides a new cybersecurity evaluation tool that guides asset owners and operators through a systematic process of evaluating operational technology and information technology. It also features a ransomware readiness assessment, which is a self-assessment based on a tiered set of practices to help organizations better assess how well they are equipped to defend against and recover from a ransomware incident after the assessment is complete.
The tool provides a report summarizing the assessment's results. The resources on the CISA side and its new cybersecurity evaluation tool offer two potential benefits to any organization that decides to use them. First, they will potentially help any organization identify weaknesses in its cybersecurity posture and opportunities for improvement and hardening. A second potential benefit of these new resources and tools is that they may be added to the growing body of authorities that courts and regulators might look to when determining the reasonableness of any organization's data security systems. Some state consumer privacy laws, including the California Consumer Privacy Act, contain a requirement that any covered entities, cybersecurity procedures be reasonable, and a failure to implement reasonable security procedures can potentially expose an entity to liability, even in the absence of statutory language requiring reasonableness, that is likely to be the standard by which courts and regulators judge any organization's conduct when it falls victim to a ransomware attack. Complying with the Stop Ransomware Guidance and using the new CISA evaluation tool may help any organization that is nonetheless hit with a ransomware attack tell a more persuasive story about the reasonable precautions it took. Notably, this CISA guidance and the evaluation tool are both new, and it remains to be seen whether they are effective in fighting the ONS. Lot of ransomware attacks. The Hill writes ransomware is a growing threat, US companies and infrastructure providers need to be ready. If you're like most people, You'd probably never heard of Darkseid before May, but when this little-known gang of ransomware attackers disabled the Colonial Pipeline, America started paying attention. Darkseid isn't alone. It's joined by a host of nefarious criminal collectives, like Maze, Netwalker, and Conti. These gangs specialize in hacking information technology, IT systems, stealing sensitive organizational data, and demanding lofty ransoms before they'll back off. That's why U.S. organizations have got to start preparing for the next ransomware attack before it's too late. Ransomware attacks happen almost all the time. Last year, U.S. organizations were the victims of more than 65,000 ransomware attacks, an average of just over seven ransomware attacks every hour. That's because ransomware gangs are both prolific and unscrupulous. They will target anything from a city government to a vital infrastructure provider, the FBI has recently warned that the Conti ransomware group was responsible for 290 attacks on U.S. organizations, 16 of which targeted healthcare providers. What's more, they're making too much money to even think about stopping anytime soon. In 2020, ransomware payments rose by 311%, and ransomware victims paid a combined total of nearly $350 million in cryptocurrency. The bigger ransomware groups capture a huge share of these profits, with just 25 deposit addresses receiving nearly 50% of total ransomware payments last year. In the first three months of 2021, Darkseid raked in an estimated $46 million from ransomware attacks. When you survey the threat landscape, it's obvious that major foreign actors that specialize in ransomware attacks are highly skilled, incredibly active, and extremely well-funded. There's no denying it. Our digital world has a huge ransomware problem, and the damage that this ransomware can do is truly enormous. The problem is that critical U.S. industries and infrastructure providers rely on digital IT systems to operate. In a cybercrime threat environment, where every online device or computer represents a possible attack vector, these industries and infrastructure providers have an extremely high level of exposure to cybercriminals. What's more, approximately 85% of America's critical infrastructure is privately owned. That means there are very few enforceable cybersecurity standards or guidelines and very little government oversight when cybersecurity incidents occur. As a result, everything from our water supply and electrical grid to our health system and our nation's flood dams are vulnerable to ransomware attacks and other hacks.
Without dramatic improvements in cybersecurity, the devastating ransomware attacks on Colonial Pipeline and JBS Foods will be just the tip of the iceberg. So what can O? Organizations do to mitigate their risk of becoming the next victim of ransomware? Perhaps the single most important thing is to implement best practices regarding data backups. Ransomware attacks work by capturing specific IT systems and locking out the rightful owner or operator from accessing them. This can be absolutely debilitating, but if organizations have ample and adequate data backups available, they can usually restore their system functionality without negotiating with the ransomware hackers and without suffering significant interruptions in service. To that end, organizations should follow the 3 to one rule. This rule states that every organization should have at least three full copies of their critical data systems. Keep two of these copies in separate locations and maintain one of these copies in an off-site location. Following this rule ensures that a secure data copy is available and ready to go when necessary. Additionally, organizations should make cybersecurity a major internal priority. Software updates, cybersecurity training, and password protection are easy but crucial steps in protecting your organization from cybercrime. We can't stop ransomware criminal groups from forming and targeting our organizations, but we can make sure we put up a fight when they do. Cybersecurity should be front and center of everyone's mind these days. Otherwise, we won't be ready for the next colonial pipeline attack. CRN writes Cassia ransomware attack. 10 things MSPs must do to protect themselves. Preparing for next time. The R Evil Gang pulled off one of the biggest ransomware heists in years, exploiting a vulnerability in Cassia's on-premise VSA remote monitoring and management (RMM) tool to compromise nearly 60 MSPs and encrypt the data, and demand ransom payments from up to 1,500 of their end-user customers. Cassia said the cybercriminals were able to exploit vulnerabilities in its VSA tool to pass authentication and run arbitrary command execution. This allowed our evil to leverage the VSA product's standard functionality and deploy ransomware to customer endpoints. The Cassia ransomware attack also left more than 36,000 MSPs without access to the company's flagship VSA product for nearly 10 days. CRN spoke with 10 C-suite executives and threat researchers during Black Hat USA 2021 about what MSPs must do following the Cassia ransomware attack. From scrutinizing the security of acquired assets and conducting pen tests in software development environments to putting east-west segmentation in place and limiting the access MSPs have in customer environments, here's what experts recommend. Limit scope of MSP access in customer organization. MSPs should limit their scope of access in the customer's organization to minimize the blast radius in the event a supplier like Cassia is compromised, said Colin Henderson, one trust vice president of security. MSPs should document the minimum level of access needed for the services they provide to customers, since many only need to deploy on a segment of the network without full access to the entire company. If an MSP purchases a solution from a vendor and deploys it into the customer's network while retaining access to the entire network, then any type of corrupted update or event could give the adversary unfettered access to the victim's systems. Henderson said, MSPs should consider how far their technology needs to reach in the customer's network and limit their access to that, Henderson said. If customers allow only the minimum amount of MSB access necessary, then a system compromise likely cannot be leveraged by the hackers to get into other systems in the victim's environment, according to Henderson. MSPs must treat their environment with more care since they have direct hooks into so much of their customers' environments, Henderson said. East-West Segmentation to Stop Lateral Movement 
MSPs need to keep their customers separate so that hackers can't attack all their customers if they compromise the RMM software they use. According to John Madison, Fortinet's chief marketing officer and executive vice president of products, traditional segmentation needs to be augmented by east-west micro-segmentation to keep an adversary from hopping across the MSP servers, he said. Even if something gets through, Madison said, micro-segmentation isolates the incident by preventing horizontal spread from the RMM tool which can typically see all customers, and is connected to everything, MSPs traditionally have a very flat network, which means an adversary would have access to everything if they're able to get into the MSP systems, according to Madison. Both MSPs and their customers need to re-architect their networks to minimize the damage if they're attacked, which Madison cautioned is a big project. From there, Madison said it's all about how quickly an MSP can recognize that a customer has been compromised and activating their mitigation plan which hopefully is already ready to go in the company's Security Operations Center, SOC, pen test software development process. MSPs need to look at their pipeline for software development and implementation since the software they and their vendors use is highly trusted by customers. According to Barracuda Chief Technology Officer Fleming Shai, supply chain isn't the only software infrastructure that's getting compromised, and MSPs need to continuously monitor and scan the tools that they license and libraries that they utilize. MSPs should ensure their penetration tests go beyond the IT infrastructure and get into the software development process since adversaries can enter through the development environment and then get into other environments like production, Shai said. Developers need to be included in security awareness training exercises since they're used to thinking about software availability rather than security first. MSPs should al. So ensure their credentials are secure and that SOS access points are well protected by web application security technology, according to Shai. Encrypting data is also really important to make it harder for hackers to sell victim data, Shai said. Conduct due diligence during acquisition process. MSPs generally ramp up their services offering through acquisitions, which can result in tool sprawl as the MSP acquires different companies and tries to promote their services globally, said G. Rittenhouse. Senior Vice President and General Manager of Cisco Secure. It's hard to examine a company's tools and source code before a deal closes, which Rittenhouse said can result in temporary exposure for the MSB. The developers coming in through acquisition often have a different level of security awareness than the developers already working at the MSB, and often have different build systems and development tools based on a different development pipeline, according to Rittenhouse. MSPs need to level set and bring all developers up to the same level of security awareness knowledge, Rittenhouse said. Tool sprawl is problematic following an acquisition by an MSP. And Rittenhouse said MSPs need to deal with it fairly quickly to ensure there's a uniform, world-class process for pushing out updates as quickly as possible. Avoid connecting to vulnerable ports. Cassia's VSA or MM tool suffered from an open port meaning that the adversary was able to access the vulnerable area with a special key after conducting reconnaissance and compromise a small subset of their MSP and end-user customers. According to Splunk security strategist Ryan Kovar, customers of MSPs had no way to defend against this since the hackers came in through a trusted method, he said. Once adversaries got onto the MSP's machine, they engaged in typical hacker behavior, which MSPs should be able to detect, Kovar said. MSPs also must employ cyber hygiene practices such as avoiding connections to vulnerable ports. A RMM agent installed on a customer's machine is the ultimate Trojan horse since customers invite MSPs into their network to do monitoring and administration, Kovar said. In my belief, 
Those the RMM tools are the crown jewels of an MSB because they provide godlike access to customers, and they should be defended as such, Kovar said. You're never going to win all the time, but you can certainly slow hackers down to a point where you can detect them more easily. Test for common source code vulnerabilities. MSPs need to test for remote code execution or privilege escalation vulnerabilities in the software they build or deploy since they have so much sensitive end customer information and can be used as a launch pad to compromise customers, said Shreema Kamala, Ivanti's senior vice president of cyber products. MSPs must have visibility into what vulnerabilities are being introduced into their ecosystem, he said. Hackers have taken a sniper-based approach to the IR cyberdacks and typically go after MSPs with customer density or knowledge in a particular industry, according to McCamela. They attempt to determine what technology and software these MSPs are using by looking at the questions their developers are asking on forums like Stack Overflow, McCamela said. From there, hackers will conduct reconnaissance work to see if MSPs are susceptible to common vulnerabilities in any of the software products they use and exploit any vulnerabilities that remain unaddressed, McCamela said. MSPs need to understand the offensive strategy of their cyber adversary and conduct purple team exercises focused on their own organization, according to McCamela. Hire and empower CISO to drive internal security. Customers are increasingly asking MSPs about what security controls they have in place, and while MSPs serving large enterprise customers have typically already invested in internal security, many MSPs in the SMB space have not, according to Netscope founder and CEO Sanjay Barry. Specifically, Barry said MSPs providing operations and network management services often haven't invested enough around security. MSPs need to employ a chief information security officer. CISO and should empower them by putting a reporting structure in place that allows the CISO to communicate directly with the board of directors, he said. MSPs need to at least triple and possible quintuple their security investment by building out risk, data protection, and vulnerability scanning teams to help keep their customers safe, according to Barry. MSPs runs on small margins, which Barry said has historically limited how much they invest into security, but the vendors they get PSA. An RMM software from also ran on low margins and traditionally did only what was needed from a security perspective. According to Barry, MSPs that want to thrive in the future need to build one of the best security teams out there, Barry said. Monitor and analyze software update process. Adversaries have gotten access to the customers of MSPs by infiltrating their software update process and deploying malware, meaning that MSPs must do better at monitoring and analyzing the software update process of suppliers, said John Clay, Trend Micro's vice president of threat intelligence. Attackers are looking for the critical systems and processes MSPs utilize and no longer start at the endpoint. The Cassia VSA compromise leverage, untouched systems and critical applications, and Clay said MSPs are most concerned about man-in-the-middle attacks since they allow bad actors to compromise customers by inserting themselves in the middle of recurring processes. Going forward, Clay said MSPs must become more diligent about monitoring and protecting their supply chain. The software supply chain is massive for MSPs, and threat actors are taking advantage of unpatched vulnerabilities increasingly quickly, meaning that MSPs looking to manually vet software updates for security issues before implementing them are leaving themselves susceptible to attack, Clay said. If MSPs don't trust the software coming from third-party vendors, they're going to get stuck in the mud. Ensure vendors have a vulnerability management program. If an adversary can infiltrate a MSP software update due to an oversight, 
The Poison software can propagate quickly to thousands of their customers within moments, according to Rob Cataldo, Managing Director of Kaspersky North America. Given the number of customers MSPs have being serviced through RMM platforms, Cataldo said they should conduct a third-party risk analysis around those providers. MSPs should create the expectation that their RMM vendors have a vulnerability management program in place, Cataldo said. In addition, he said MSPs should ensure technology suppliers have vetted their source code to the maximum extent possible to ensure their customers have a secure experience. RMM vendors should ideally have a risk-based vulnerability management program in place, but Cataldo said there's a wide range of maturity levels among technology suppliers when it comes to identifying vulnerabilities and managing patches. As a result, Cataldo said bad actors have been able to take advantage of common vulnerabilities and exposure that have been present for a long period of time. Have solid security fundamentals in place. MSPs must ensure solid security fundamentals are in place such as multi-factor authentication, robust next-generation endpoint security, and internal personnel dedicated to monitoring and managing those endpoints. According to SOFA CEO Chris Hagerman, MSPs should also conduct regular online backups and retain updated copies of those backups, which he said is a difficult but manageable challenge. MSPs need to look at their entire supply chain and assess the security profile of each of the different organizations, which Hagerman said creates a substantial additional obligation for MSPs. MSPs should ask important questions about how well-positioned that provider is in terms of their internal security controls and ensure that key cybersecurity best practices have been implemented. In addition, Hagerman said MSPs themselves need to implement more robust security capabilities to ensure they're less vulnerable and not promulgating problems in the event of a supply chain attack. MSPs can enhance their security posture by being on the most advanced systems and ensuring those systems are actively patched and monitored. Krebs on security rights ransomware gangs and the name game distraction. It's nice when ransomware gangs have their bitcoins stolen, malware servers shut down, or otherwise forced to disband. We hang on to these occasional victories because history tells us that most ransomware money-making collectives don't go away so much as reinvent themselves under a new name, with new rules, targets, and weaponry. Indeed, some of the most destructive and costly ransomware groups are now in their third incarnation. Reinvention is a basic survival skill in the cybercrime business. Among the oldest tricks in the book is to fake one's demise or retirement and invent a new identity. A key goal of such subterfuge is to throw investigators off the scent or to temporarily direct their attention elsewhere. Cybercriminal syndicates also perform similar disappearing acts whenever it suits them. These organizational reboots are an opportunity for ransomware program leaders to set new ground rules for their members, such as which types of victims aren't allowed, e.g. hospitals, government's critical infrastructure, or how much of a ransom payment an affiliate should expect for bringing the group access to a new victim network. I put together the above graphic to illustrate some of the more notable ransom gang reinventions over the past five years. What it doesn't show is what we already know about the cybercriminals behind many of these seemingly disparate ransomware groups, some of whom were pioneers in the ransomware space almost a decade ago. We'll explore that more in the latter half of this story. One of the more intriguing and recent revamps involves Darkside, the group that extracted a $5 million ransom from Colonial Pipeline earlier this year, only to watch much of it get clawed back in an operation by the U.S. Department of Justice. After acknowledging someone had also seized their internet servers, Darkside announced it was folding. But a little more than a month later, a new ransomware affiliate program called Black Matter emerged, and experts quickly determined Black Matter 
was using the same unique encryption methods that Darkseid had used in their attacks. Darkseid's demise roughly coincided with that of our evil, a long-running ransomware group that claims to have extorted more than $100 million from victims. Our evil's last big victim was Cassia, a Miami-based company whose products help system administrators manage large networks remotely. That attack let our evil deploy ransomware to as many as 1,500 organizations that used Cassia. Our evil demanded a whopping $70 million to release a universal decryptor for all victims of the Cassia attack. Just days later, President Biden reportedly told Russian President Vladimir Putin that he expects Russia to act when the United States shares information on specific Russians involved in ransomware activity. Whether that conversation prompted actions is unclear, but our evil's victim shaming blog woe. All disappear from the dark web just four days later. Mark Arena, CEO of Cyber Threat Intelligence from Intel 471, said it remains unclear whether Black Matter is the or evil crew operating under a new banner, or if it is simply the reincarnation of Dark Side. But one thing is clear, Arena said, likely we will see them again unless they've been arrested. Likely indeed. Our evil is widely considered a reboot of Gan Crab, a prolific ransomware gang that boasted of extorting more than $2 billion over 12 months before abruptly closing up shop in June. 2019, we are living proof that you can do evil and get off scot-free, Gan Crab bragged. And wouldn't you know it, researchers have found Gan Crab shared key behaviors with Cerber, an early ransomware-as-a-service operation that stopped claiming new victims at roughly the same time that Gan Crab came on the scene. Good grief. The past few months have been a busy time for ransomware groups looking to rebrand. Bleeping Computer recently reported that the new grief ransomware startup was just the latest paint job of Tapel Pamer, a ransomware strain that shared most of its code with an earlier iteration from 2016 called BitPamer. All three of these ransom operations stem from a prolific cybercrime group known variously as TA505 Indrik Spider, and perhaps most memorably Evil Corp. According to security from CrowdStrike, Indrik Spider was formed in 2014 by former affiliates of the Game Over Zeus criminal network, who internally referred to themselves as the Business Club. The Business Club was a notorious Eastern European, organized cybercrime gang accused of stealing more than $100 million from banks and businesses worldwide. In 2015, the FBI offered a standing $3 million bounty for information leading to the capture of the Business Club's leader, Evgenia Mikhailovich Bogachev. By the time the FBI put a price on his head, Bogachevsu's Trojan and later variants had been infecting computers for nearly a decade. Bogachev was way ahead of his colleagues in pursuing ransomware. His Gamiaverzus botnet was a peer-to-peer -peer crime machine that infected between 500,000 and a million Microsoft Windows computers. Throughout 2013 and 2014, PCs infected with Gamiaver were seeded with Cryptoloker, an early much-copied ransomware strain allegedly authored by Bogachev himself. CrowdStrike notes that shortly after the group's inception, Indrik Spider developed their own custom malware known as Dridix, which has emerged as a major vector for deploying malware that lays the groundwork for ransomware attacks. Early versions of Dridix were primitive, but over the years the malware became increasingly professional and sophisticated CrowdStrike researchers wrote. In fact, Dridix operations were significant throughout 2015 and 2016, making it one of the most prevalent ECRI malware families. That CrowdStrike report was from July 2019. In April 2021, security experts at Checkpoint Soft, where found Dridix was still the most prevalent malware, for the second month running, mainly distributed via well-crafted phishing emails, such as a recent campaign that spoofed QuickBooks. Dridix often serves as the attacker's initial foothold in company-wide ransomware attacks, 
Checkpoint said. Rebranding to avoid sanctions. Another ransomware family tied to Evil Corp. And the Dritix gang is Wasted Locker, which is the latest name of a ransomware strain that has rebranded several times since 2019. That was when the Justice Department put a $5 million bounty on the head of Evil Corp. And the Treasury Department's Office of Foreign Asset Control OFIC said it was prepared to impose hefty fines on anyone who paid a ransom to the cybercrime group. In early June 2021 researchers discovered the Dritix gang was once again trying to morph in an effort to evade U.S. sanctions. The drama began when the Babic ransomware group announced in May that they were starting a new platform for data leak extortion, which was intended to appeal to ransomware groups that didn't already have a blog where they can publicly shame victims into paying by gradually releasing stolen data. On June 1st, Babic changed the name of its leak site to payload.bin and began leaking victim data. Since then, multiple security experts have spotted what they believe is another version of Wasted Locker dressed up as Payloadbin branded ransomware. Looks like Evil Corp is trying to pass off as Babic this time, wrote Fabian Wazer, chief technology officer at security firm Emsisoft. As Babic releases their Payloadbin leak portal, Evil Corp rebrands Wasted Locker once again as Payloadbin in an attempt to trick victims into violating OFIC regulations. Experts are quick to point out that many cybercriminals involved in ransomware activity are affiliates of more than one distinct ransomware as a service operation. In addition, it is common for a large number of affiliates to migrate to competing ransomware groups when their existing sponsor suddenly gets shut down. All of the above would seem to suggest that the success of any strategy for countering the ransomware epidemic hinges heavily on the ability to disrupt or apprehend a relatively small number of cybercriminals who appear to wear many disguises. Perhaps that's why the Biden administration said last month it was offering a $10 million reward for information that leads to the arrest of the gangs behind the extortion schemes and for new approaches that make it easier to trace and block cryptocurrency payments. Ride the lighting rights ransomware gangs playing hide-and-seek with name changes. Krebson Security carried a post on August 5 called Ransomware Gangs and the name game Distraction. Good post, and it illuminates the whack-a-mole game that is driving law enforcement and government's crazy. Every so often, we hear that a ransomware gang has had its Bitcoin confiscated, servers shut down, or the entire gang retiring. Sadly, ransomware gangs do not really retire. They reinvent themselves with a new name instead. With luck, this impedes any ongoing investigations or turns attention in another direction. Krebs calls this maneuver an organizational reboot. It gives the leaders of the gangs a chance to establish new ground rules for their members like identifying entities which must not be attacked, e.g. hospitals, governments, and critical infrastructure, they may set ransom payments or the amount they will pay for access to a new victim. The post contains a nice graphic to illustrate some of the more notable ransom gang reinventions over the past five years. You may recall Darkside, the gang that got a $5 million ransom from Colonial Pipeline earlier this year, and then had much of it clawed back in in operation by the U.S. Department of Justice. After admitting that someone had also seized their internet servers, Darkside announced it was closing shop. A little more than a month later, a new ransomware affiliate program called Black Matter emerged, and experts quickly determined Black Matter was using the same unique encryption methods that Darkside had used in their attacks. So much for retirement. Darkside's retirement roughly coincided with that of our evil, a long-running ransomware group that claims to have extorted more than $100 million from victims. As you may recall, our evil's last big victim was Cassia, a Miami-based company whose products help system administrators manage large networks remotely.
That attack allowed our evil to deploy ransomware to as many as 1,500 organizations that used Cassia. Our evil asked for an astronomical $70 million to release a universal decryptor for all victims of the Cassia attack. Days later, President Biden reportedly told Russian President Vladimir Putin that he expects Russia to act when the United States shares information on specific Russians involved in ransomware activity. Did that have an impact? We don't know. But four days later, our evil's victim shaming blog vanished from the dark web. Markarina CEO of Cyber Threat Intelligence from Intel 471 said it remains unclear whether Black Matter is the our evil crew operating under a new banner or if it is simply the reincarnation of Dark Side. Our evil is widely considered a reboot of Gand Crab, a prolific ransomware gang that boasted of extorting more than $2 billion over 12 months before abruptly closing up shop in June 2019. We are living proof that you can do evil and get off scot-free, Gand Crab bragged. Charming folks, eh? As you might imagine, rebranding is a useful way to avoid sanctions. Another ransomware family tied to Evil Corp. And the Dritix gang is Wasted Locker which is the latest name of a ransomware strain that has rebranded several times since 2019. That was when the Justice Department put a $5 million bounty out on Evil Corp. And the Treasury Department's Office of Foreign Asset Control, OFAC, announced it. Was prepared to impose hefty fines on anyone who paid a ransom to the cybercrime group. Experts point out that many cybercriminals involved in ransomware activity are affiliates of more than one distinct ransomware-as-a-service operation. Commonly, many affiliates move to competing ransomware groups when their existing sponsor is shut down. As Krebs notes, all of this suggests that the success of any strategy for combating ransomware depends on the ability to disrupt or apprehend a relatively small number of cybercriminals who seem to wear many disguises. That may be why the Biden administration said last month it was offering a $10 million reward for information that leads to the arrest of the gangs behind the extortion schemes and for new approaches that make it easier to trace and block cryptocurrency payments. Truly in the current landscape, we all need a band of heroes to emerge and counter the scourge of ransomware.